Well, hello and welcome to, if you can believe it or not, the last Sunday of February. A few weeks ago, I was scrolling through social media, as one does, and I came across a video of a guy going on this rant about how February is the absolute worst month of the year. And I don't know that I fully agree with that sentiment, but he shared something that his dad used to tell him. His dad used to say, if you can live through February, you will live another year. So let me be the first to congratulate you. You've almost made it all the way through February. And if you do, according to some guy's dad, you're going to live another year. Uh, but as we move out of February, spring starts inching closer. It's already feeling warmer outside than it has at least where I'm at, maybe not where you're at, but spring and spring break is right around the corner. Travel season is upon us. And I love to travel, but I absolutely hate something that goes along with traveling, and that is packing. Anybody else with me? I think most people hate packing except for maybe a few sickos. Um, and don't feel too bad because all the evidence points to the fact that I should be included among those sickos. I love structure. I love rules. I love order. I love planning. I love things being in their proper place. And so it makes sense that I should love packing, but I just don't. I absolutely hate it. And I think a reason that I hate it is because for me, it's stressful. It brings up all these questions like, what should I bring? What do I need to not bring? What am I forgetting? And really, it's that last question that haunts me. What is it that I'm forgetting? Every time I go on a trip, I have this fear that I'm going to forget something that I really, really need. And then I'm going to get to where I'm going. I'm going to reach my destination, and it's too late. It dawns on me in that moment that I don't have what I need, and there's no way for me to get it. And I think the worst time that this ever happened to me, the worst thing that I ever forgot on a trip was on my wife and I's honeymoon. It was a great trip. We went on a cruise to the Bahamas back when cruises were a thing. And on a cruise to the Bahamas, there are some absolute must-brings. Sunscreen, if you look like me, a swimsuit of some kind, some nice outfits for the dinners that they make you dress up for, and sunglasses. Now for you, sunglasses may not be an essential, but for me, sunglasses and not having sunglasses is a big problem for a number of reasons. The first of which is that I have beautiful blue eyes. Thank you for saying that. I have beautiful blue eyes, and blue eyes are notorious for letting in extra sunlight. And so forgetting sunglasses turns into a big problem. Second, I like to look cool, and sunglasses can't be argued. Sunglasses look cool. And so the fact that I forgot my sunglasses on this trip, the fact that I forgot one of my top five must-brings was devastating. In all the pictures of Cynthia and I on our honeymoon, I'm either squinting because I don't have sunglasses on, or I'm wearing this terrible pair of peachish color glasses that were crooked on my face from years of being buried at the bottom of Cynthia's purse. But desperate times called for desperate measures, so I did what I had to do, and not to be overly dramatic, but me forgetting my sunglasses ruined Cynthia and I's honeymoon. Now, packing is stressful because you can ruin your whole trip by forgetting something that's important. For you, it may actually be something that is important, not just sunglasses. If you forget your phone or uh, an important document, if it's a business trip or if you forget your passport, you can't even go on the trip. Forgetting things that are important on a trip can ruin the trip. 
But it's also a challenge because every trip, whether it's a huge move across the country for a new job or a cabin weekend or an overnight business trip or your go bag for the hospital when you're having your kids, every trip that you go on, there are things that you need to bring and things that you need to leave behind. And maybe you're tracking with that metaphor or maybe you're not. So let me go ahead and tell you exactly what I'm saying. Christianity is a journey. In fact, I think a journey might be the most helpful metaphor for us for explaining what exactly it means to follow Jesus. Note the language there. To follow implies movement. It implies steps that you take. It implies a journey that you go on. William Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas put it like this. Think of Christianity not primarily as a set of doctrines, a volunteer organization, or a list of appropriate behaviors. Think of Christianity as naming a journey of a people. Now, that's not to say that Christianity is not any of those things. Doctrine, what you believe, is incredibly important. Without volunteers, what's happening right now, what happens every week at Movement Church, could not happen. But none of those things are the main thing. Christianity is primarily a journey that we take. And each and every one of us is in a different phase of that journey. For some of you watching right now, you wouldn't even consider yourself on that journey. Maybe you wouldn't, wouldn't explain yourself, wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian or think of yourself as someone who is following Jesus. And so you're not even on the journey yet. Maybe you're watching right now and, and you feel really, really early in the journey. You made that decision to follow Jesus. You, you decided to go on this journey, but that happened recently. And so you're still even figuring out what exactly that looks like for you in your day-to-day -day lives. And of course, there would be others of us tuning in right now who have been on this journey for a while. Maybe you've been on this journey for several years. Maybe for you, it's been decades. And, and maybe for you, it's been your entire lifetime. The point is, is that all of us are on a journey. And so what I want to look at today is a few helpful tips for us to figure out how to pack for the journey that is Christianity. What are some things that we need to bring? What are some things that we would be better off leaving behind? And obviously, I won't be able to cover absolutely everything that would be important for a Christian to bring with them on their journey to follow Jesus, because that would take forever. But what I want to do is look with you at a journey, a specific journey that earlier followers of Jesus went on, and take a look at what that can show us about how to be prepared for our own journey with Jesus. Sound good? Good. So if you have your Bible close by or your phone or your app or whatever you're going to be following along with, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to start in the second half of verse 6. But while you're turning there, I want to set the scene a little bit. See, in the lead up to the passage that we're about to read, Jesus had been staying busy. He had been doing what he does, teaching parables, which were these cool stories that, that illustrate an important point. And after that, he's tired. They're going to their next destination. And so him and his disciples get on a boat, and Jesus takes a nap. But the disciples start freaking out. They're worried that they're going to die from this storm that's happening. And they're being overly dramatic. And it feels even more dramatic because Jesus just wakes up and tells the storm to stop, and it does. And then they reach their destination, and Jesus casts a bunch of demons out of one guy, 
and the demons beg him, don't just send us anywhere. Please send us into this herd of pigs. And so Jesus does. I imagine Jesus being like, yeah, okay, whatever. And these demons go into these pigs, and then these demon-possessed pigs run off a cliff. It's a wild story. You should check it out on your own time. But as you can imagine, a whole herd of pigs dying disrupted the local economy quite a bit. And so these people end up asking Jesus to leave town. And so he does. Jesus and his disciples, they move on to their next destination where someone comes up to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal his daughter. And so Jesus starts heading towards this guy's house. And on the way, a a woman who, who needed healing reaches out to Jesus and Jesus heals her. And then they get word that while they were on this journey, the original person Jesus was heading to heal had died. But Jesus goes on with the journey, reaches the guy's house, raises this original daughter from the dead, and then they move on to their next destination, which is Jesus's hometown. But his hometown rejects him, and because of their lack of faith in Jesus being able to be anything other than just the local carpenter's son, they reject him. And so Jesus moves on from there. Now, I share all of that backstory for us to notice how much of that includes journey language. Jesus and his disciples are constantly moving, constantly announcing the good news of the kingdom, and constantly demonstrating through miracles and healing just how exactly the kingdom of God on earth is, in fact, good news. But in each of these stories, and even in some stories before these, it's Jesus as the main catalyst. Jesus is the one doing the healing. Jesus is the one who sends the demons into the pigs. Jesus is the one doing resurrections. Jesus is the one giving sight to the blind. Jesus is the one doing all of it. And the disciples are in more of a studying phase. They observe Jesus. They watch what he's doing. They go everywhere with him. They observe him. But the expectation is that eventually they will go on to do what Jesus does. And that's where we reach our passage for today. And this passage is a transition point in the life of the disciples. It shows us Jesus giving the disciples instructions for their next part in their journey with him. And ultimately what we find are some instructions for our part in the same journey. So let's jump in to the second half of verse six, where it says, then Jesus went from village to village, teaching the people. And he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick. No food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. The first thing that we see in this is that the disciples were commissioned. See, this journey wasn't their idea. It wasn't something that they thought up and got approval from Jesus for. This journey started with Jesus. Jesus sent them. See, even the word there that that we see them called the disciples is other places is translated as apostles. And what that word means is to be sent forth on mission, to be sent forth with a mission. And so the sending was Jesus's idea. The mission was Jesus's plan. And the disciples were Jesus's chosen instrument to accomplish it. But what we also see is Jesus being very intentional throughout this whole process and about his plan for each disciple. See, it begins when Jesus goes to each of the disciples individually and calls them to follow him. He promises to make them fishers of men. And then he goes and introduces the next phase of the plan for them, and he tells them that the next part of them 
going on this journey with him is for them to simply be with him. Jesus invites them to abide in him. And so they did. They went everywhere with Jesus. They, they witnessed his power and they heard his message. But now in this passage, we see them going into the next phase. We see the next step of the journey was for them to be sent. Jesus was sending them out no longer just to be with him, but also to do what he did. They were the sent out ones. They were commissioned. They were sent out on Jesus's behalf to do what they had previously only seen him do. The second observation that we can make is that the disciples were connected. Jesus sent them out, but he didn't send them out alone. Being sent out together two by two in this way reminds us of what we learned all the way back in Deuteronomy, where it tells us that no one could be actually convicted of a crime on the witness of one person. They needed two to three witnesses to verify the truth of what was being uh, accused. And so Jesus sending them out as witnesses to everything that he had done and said in the same way was to strengthen the, the, the veracity and the truth and the reliability of the message that the disciples were carrying. And so they were taking the next step of this journey, moving into deeper responsibility. But Jesus was demonstrating that their relationships with each other in community was intended to continue into this new season of taking the mission of Jesus forward. The next thing that we see is that the disciples were empowered. See, Jesus sent them out. Jesus made sure that they had each other. But then he also empowered them for the task that they were to accomplish. See, imagine for a second that you're one of the disciples. You wake up every morning and you're not sure what's going to happen that day. You've seen Jesus do all these crazy things and it always catches you off guard. The people are all riled up. And every morning you're waking up, you're not sure what miracle you're going to see happen, but you know you're going to see something miraculous that day. And I'm sure seeing all of this happen was amazing. Seeing Jesus cast out demons and, and give sight to the blind and raise the dead and heal the sick, all these things that Jesus did, it's fascinating and it's exciting and it's exhilarating. But then Jesus turns to you and says that you're going to do the same thing. That's a different feeling. You move from exhilarating and fascinating to suddenly terrifying and nerve-wracking and overwhelming. But Jesus didn't just send them out on their own. Jesus didn't just tell them to do these things. Jesus gave them authority. He gave them the power to do what they had seen him do. The things that Jesus was asking them to do, they were going to do on his behalf, and they would have the strength of Jesus's authority to help them accomplish it. And then the last thing that we see is that the disciples were emptied. See, at first glance, it looks like they were going to be ill-equipped for this journey. Jesus tells them a bunch of stuff that they can't take. Can't take food, a traveler's bag, money, a change of clothes. It's actually kind of a long list of things that they can't bring. And it jumps out to me as these are things that they would definitely need for the type of journey that they're going on. And yet Jesus tells them to leave it all behind. Ultimately, I think Jesus was inviting them to empty themselves of their reliance on everything but him. They were being invited into total trust in Jesus. He was equipping the disciples with the freedom that comes from not relying on yourself, not relying on your money, not relying on your comfort or your possessions or your ability or yourself. They were to travel light and free 
and be completely reliant upon the Spirit of God to provide everything that they needed. So that's all cool. What a cool story. Good for the disciples. They were commissioned, connected, empowered, and equipped. C-C-E-E. That's cool. But what does that have to do with us? What it has to do with us is that everything that the disciples needed for their journey in this passage, we also need for our journey in following Jesus today. So what I want to do is look a little deeper at each one and at some specific ways that we can live into those needs in our daily lives. And the first one is that we need to be commissioned for the journey by discovering our vocation. In the same way that Jesus went to each disciple individually and called them to follow him. And then as they went deeper into the journey, Jesus invited them to abide in him and then sent them from there, sent them out on mission. Jesus does the same for us. Jesus has called each of us to come and follow him. Jesus has invited each of us to every day abide in his presence so that we may take on his character but ultimately, he sends us out from there to live as the person that he created us to be for the sake of others. The psychologist Dr. David Benner explains it like this. God's will for us is that we live out the harmonious expression of our gifts, temperament, passions, and vocation in truthful dependence on God. Nothing less than this is worthy of being called our true self. Nothing less than this will lead to our deepest fulfillment. And nothing less than this will allow us to show the face of Christ to the world that we have been called from eternity to show. What a vision. But I want you to note that this isn't just about pastors. This isn't just for people who have a hobby and are interested in theology. This isn't just about those who read Christian books. This is for each of us. Each of us have unique giftings, unique temperaments and passions and a vocation that God wants us to discover for the sake of his kingdom. Maybe for you, your vocation is you are being sent into the business world to operate according to God's economy rather than that of your peers. Maybe you've always been a career-driven person and you're now being sent into a season of staying at home as a, an at-home parent and you're surprised by how much contentment you can find by, by pouring yourself into raising young disciples of Jesus. Maybe you are wired as an extrovert and you are being sent to make connections that wouldn't other ha otherwise happen between people. Maybe for you, you have a passion for the poor and you are being sent to start a justice ministry in the church or a nonprofit in, in, in your local community in order to see God's kingdom come in that area. See, the details can vary greatly from person to person, but the goal is always the same. The goal is to find the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Think about that. That's what each and every one of us are called to do, whether we work in a church, whether we work at a school, no matter what we do, our calling is to find the place where our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. So how do we go about finding that place? One great way if you have gone through growth track with us that you've seen is by taking what's called a gift test. A gift test is exactly what it sounds like. It's a test that you take that helps you to figure out your gifts. 
It can help you discover what you're good at, what gifts God has given you, and how you could best serve the kingdom of God using those gifts. Another tool available to help you discover who God created you to be are personality tests. See, the more we discover about our temperament and about our personality traits and about our, our strengths or weaknesses and, and how to work through those things, the more we discover about who we are, the better we can live into our identity as a child of God who is sending us out on mission. But above all, maybe the best way to discover our calling, our vocation, our, our temperament, what we're good at, where we are being sent, is to simply ask God to find a quiet, solitary place where we can slow down and quiet ourselves enough to listen to the voice of the Father. And I know, depending on what season you're in, that can sound impossible. Trust me, I know more than maybe I ever have in my life as I'm in one of those seasons right now with a four-month-old son who never slows down. It may take planning, it may take sacrifice, and it absolutely will take intentionality, but it can be done. And I think it should be done because we need to be commissioned for the journey. Second, we need to be connected with each other on the journey through a commitment to community. See, Jesus consistently demonstrated the importance of community. Not only did he send the disciples in groups of two in the passage so that they could rely on, on each other's strength, so that they could turn to each other in hard times, but through all the time prior to the passage that we read today, Jesus had been forming the disciples into a family. Now, should you quit your job and find 12 friends and travel around and share everything together? Yeah, that, I mean, that's probably a good idea. That's something that, that, that would be beneficial for all of us. But it's just not necessarily realistic, and it's probably not going to happen. Um, so all of us, I think, instead can grow through this area through a greater commitment to gathering together as the body of Christ. I love what just Joseph Hellerman says in his book, When the Church Was a Family. He says, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Persons who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding, and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality. We grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. The reality touched on in that quote is that community is hard. For some of us, community is hard because we're just so busy between our workload, between the kids' school schedule, the kids' after-school activity schedule, between just trying to stay sane by finding some alone time or finding time for our hobbies or catch up on our Netflix queue or all the things that are going on in our life. Between all of those things happening, oftentimes community sometimes can fall to the back. For others of us, community is hard simply because of how we are wired. We aren't naturally extroverted people, and so church can feel exhausting. And if we're honest, sometimes church can feel like it's geared more towards the extroverts, geared more towards the people who are naturally outgoing. And so community is a challenge for you. Others, 
of us have a hard time with community because we discovered the reality that we are hurt the deepest at the deepest level of community. And so maybe we were in community before and it broke our heart and we decided to never let that happen again. Busyness, personality type, previous hurt, and so many other things can and want to stand in the way of the blessings of community. But what if we intentionally worked around all that? What if we prioritized community so much that we redid our schedules, that we eliminated some things that aren't growing us the way that we know community can? What if we push past our personality type and rather than using it as an excuse to withdraw, we used it as an opportunity to grow? What if we did whatever it took to work through that previous hurt, whether that's through, through prayer or forgiveness or therapy or some combination of all of those? See, I think if we committed to doing all that, if we committed to doing whatever it takes to be in community, I think we would learn the truth of that quote, that we grow and thrive together or we don't grow much at all. Next, we need to be empowered by God for the journey through regular encounters with the Holy Spirit. Now, take a quick glance back at the passage. It doesn't mention the Holy Spirit anywhere. So why do we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? See, we, we learn in that passage that Jesus empowered the disciples by giving them the authority and the power to do what he had done. But he was physically there with them. He, he said those things to their faces. And so in this world that we live in, after Jesus' death, after Jesus' resurrection, he's no longer physically with us. But his, des his desire never changed. His desire is the same. His desire is to give us the authority and the power to do what he did. And the way that he chooses to do that today is through the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're in the category of people from earlier who, who don't consider yourself as on this journey yet, or if you're in the other category of you're very early on in this journey, or simply if you just come from a different church background, any talk of the Holy Spirit can feel a bit uncomfortable. And that's okay. But I would like to introduce you. So simply put, the Holy Spirit is God's personal presence moving through the world and in the lives of his people. The Holy Spirit is God's personal presence moving through the world and in the lives of his people. That is what, or more accurately, that is who we need regular encounters of, God's personal presence. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we regularly encounter the personal presence of God in the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that question, honestly, it could be its own series. So let me just give you three ideas. First, the Bible. Whenever the Bible is open, the Holy Spirit is there. See, one of the Holy Spirit's job is to illuminate Scripture for us, to turn the light on of what a passage means and speak that meaning to us. So if you want to regularly experience the presence of God, one way is to open the Word of God. A second way is in community. I know, I know, we just did a whole section on community, but it truly is one of the places that the Holy Spirit loves to show up. Jesus says himself in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, he says that where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there with them. Psalm 22, verse 3 says that God inhabits the praise of his people. Now think for a second, can you name a place where both of those things happen? 
Can you name a place where people gather in the name of Jesus? Two or three people gather in the name of Jesus, and then they praise his name. I'll give you a hint. We're doing that right now. Yeah, church is a place of encounter with God's personal presence. If you come expecting to meet God here, you will. It's why we do what we do, so that you have an opportunity to meet with the personal presence of God. And the third way the Holy Spirit loves to show up in is in times of stillness, silence, solitude, or a combination of all three. See, when we're constantly doing, when we're constantly surrounded by noise, when we're constantly distracted, the Spirit may be speaking, but we're going to have a hard time hearing. But when we get alone, when we slow ourselves down enough to listen, when we remove distractions, when we remove the noise, we, must, we, we might just be surprised how clearly we can hear the Spirit speaking. And lastly, we need to be equipped for the journey by embracing simplicity. Anybody notice the pattern of things that Jesus mentions that they're not allowed to bring on the journey? To refresh us, Jesus tells them they were to bring no food, no bags, no money, and no change of clothes. Those things are all tied to material needs, to security, to wealth, and to control. And Jesus tells them to leave it all behind. Now, at first, that sounds really hard. Like, how are the disciples going to eat? How are they going to be prepared for different situations that might come up? How are they going to stay warm? How are they going to survive, honestly? And the answer is that they would have to trust Jesus for all of those things, rather than trusting in money, rather than trusting in the control that comes with having a backup plan, rather than trusting in the security that things can bring. Instead, they would have to place all of their trust in Jesus and his promise to and his ability to provide for them. And Jesus calls us to the same thing. Jesus calls us to break free and empty ourselves of these same things and to instead live in joyous trust of him. Richard Foster writes that Jesus points us to a way of living in which everything we have we receive as a gift and everything we have is cared for by God and everything we have is available to others when it is right and good. So my question is, do we live like that? Are we open-handed enough to the point where every single thing that we have, we realize comes from God and every single thing we are open to giving away to anyone else at any time? What are we holding on to that makes us feel secure? What are we holding on to that makes us feel in control? How tightly are we holding on to material things? How dependent on and stressed out by money are we? See, what would it look like instead for us to leave those things behind on our journey with Jesus and instead live in joyous trust of the Father? To close, I was thinking about when I first went to Bible college, smartphones weren't really a thing. Uh, they, some people had them, but I certainly could not afford one at that time of my life. So when I would go on a road trip, which is the modern day version of a journey, what I would have to do would be to go to a website on a desktop, desktop computer, type in the starting address that I'm starting from and the, the address of the place that I wanted to go to, 
and then that website would give me the step-by-step -step directions that we now just have on our phones, and then I would have to print those out and take all those papers with me on my trip. And so I'd find myself driving around holding basically a packet of papers with turn-by-turn -turn directions on there. But if at some point on that journey, you had to break for some reason and the paper slid off of your seat and they get mixed up down on the floor, that's a problem you gotta deal with. Or maybe your, your printer was low on ink that day and one part of the directions didn't print as well as the rest and so you're having a hard time reading it. That is another problem that you would have to deal with. Or what if one of the pages was missing entirely? It just didn't get printed off or it got lost somewhere in the shuffle? Another problem to deal with. Or maybe you feel like you know where you're going and so you're like, you put the directions aside and you just get going and then before long you realize you missed a step somewhere and, and you're not where you thought you should be. That's another problem that needs to be dealt with. Now, how do you solve any of those problems? Probably the safest course of action in this very specific example that I'm giving is to pull over on the side of the road and address it. To, to look through the papers, get them in the right order, or to look closer at the sheet that didn't print right, or, or go on an all-out search for the missing sheet, or to look through the directions and backtrack and figure out where exactly it is that you went wrong. And so my hope, my prayer for this message today is that this would lead to that kind of moment for us. That this would be a moment on our journey where we can take a step back, take a break, and reevaluate where we are on the journey. To think about, am I ready to actually take that step to begin this journey? To print out the directions, to think about the things that I need, think about the things that I don't need, and, and adjust accordingly. Or if we're early on the journey, it's a great opportunity to, to think through, okay, this is how I want to go. These are the things that I want to be part of my journey, and these are the things that I want to leave behind in following Jesus. And for others of us that have been on this journey for a long time, the temptation is, is usually the one where we began to rely on muscle memory and cruise control, and we just kind of go through the motions in life. And so this is an opportunity for us to slow down on our journey and evaluate where we are, to evaluate what's going on in our walk with Jesus right now, and to, to compare what's happening in our walk with Jesus to the standard that Jesus set when he sent the disciples on this journey, to ask ourselves some, some good questions, to ask ourselves, are we confident in our identity and vocation and what exactly it is that Jesus has sent us to do? Are we as committed to community as we know Jesus would want us to be? Are we experiencing regularly the personal presence of God through the person of the Holy Spirit? Are we living freely and lightly with an open hand, not relying on our security or money, but rather trusting Jesus for everything that we need? And so I pray that this afternoon, this week, sometime soon, that you would get with a, a close friend or someone that you respect who's farther along on the journey or a pastor or, or a book or just alone time with you and the Lord and evaluate where you are on the journey and what steps you need to take, what things you need to pick up maybe that you left along the road somewhere or what things you need to leave behind that are slowing you down on this journey. Let's pray. God, thank you that you invite us onto this journey with you that no matter what step of the journey that we're on, no matter where we are in following you, you are there with us. 
And so I pray that you would lead us into deeper levels of abiding with you, but ultimately that you would help us to discover where it is that you are sending us, that you would help us to discover our vocation, that you would uh, lead us to, to more regular encounters of your presence, and that you would help us along in this journey. We thank you that you're with us every step of the way. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to do some self-evaluation and see where we are. And I just pray that you would reveal to each and every one of us what steps we are to take going forward from here. Thank you, Lord, so much that you are the goal of the journey. And I pray that we would not lose sight of that. In your name we pray. Amen.